Welcome to This Is How, an ACLU of North Carolina podcast that unlocks the untold stories of justice, freedom, and activism from right here in North Carolina. We will explore how we can make change happen one voice at a time. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and empowered to create a fairer future for all. And now, here's our host. Hi, everyone. I'm Calvin from the ACLU of North Carolina. My pronouns are he, him, his. Welcome back to This Is How. In today's episode, we are continuing our conversation with Carlton Powell and Michelle Delgado about the disorderly conduct law in North Carolina. Let's talk a little bit about the NC Disorderly Conduct Report that was released by the ACLU. As it relates to the disorderly conduct in schools law that went into effect in 2016, it is a crime to disrupt, disturb, or interfere with teaching. This report speaks to essentially the effect of this law in 2023 as it relates to disciplinary actions and disparities. Michelle, can you speak to how this law contributed to the overcriminalization of students, especially Black students and those with disabilities? The way the disorderly conduct statute has been used in schools since like 2017, it seems that, um, well, it's not it seems, the numbers show that Black students and students with disabilities are disproportionately um, represented in the amount of referrals related to disorderly conduct. And what it really gets down to is that SROs and that are charging students with this statute are really criminalizing childish behavior. Um, and it also leaves a lot of room for uh, SROs implicit bias to to get involved as far as like who are they charging, whether it's black students, white students. And the numbers are showing, especially in um, certain counties, that typically black students are the only ones charged or they're charged at four time, five times the rate of white students. So that's what we're seeing. And this was from 2017 to now is what the report talks about? Yes. Okay. And there's been some talk about how the law is pretty vague and broad um, and, and what it kind of outlines. So does the vague nature of this law impact the discretion of law enforcement officers and administrators in defining disruptive behavior? Yes, because it's so vague and leaves open for so much discretion on what an officer deems uh, disorderly conduct. That, that's what really is the issue. In South Carolina, they um, challenged a, a similar statute, which was found unconstitutional because of its vagueness. So that's what we're saying is happening here. The um, statute is really vague, at least open for interpretation, which means that students have no notice as to what kind of behavior would be deemed disorderly conduct. And so um, because students are not notified, really, or understanding what is disorderly conduct, then at least open for officers to just charge or not charge based on their own discretion. So even students aren't sure like what that even means. Are teachers or do teachers also get to define what is considered disorderly conduct in their classrooms? Because the statute is vague, anyone can really argue whatever they think is disorderly conduct, right? And it'll, it'll be up to whoever wants to file that petition and then it'll be up to the judge at that moment who's hearing the case. So is is the problem is that anyone can interpret it in different ways. And that's why we're saying it's vague. Is there something in North Carolina like there is in South Carolina that is challenging this as unconstitutional? Right now, there is no active litigation challenging this, but it is open if anybody feels like they would like to challenge it. (laughs) Okay, very good. Thank you for explaining that. Um, Carlton, do you have anything to add in terms of what defines disorderly conduct or how you've experienced people interpreting it this is kind of like the standard now you know it's like this is if there's some potential delinquent baby or there's just a school rule is being broken we start there's this the standard is now let's let's is this is this a violation of the law and should and let's should we be sending it to to a juvenile court and it's just that's happening a lot more than it used to um which begs the question why you know because if it's disorderly conduct and it's all if it's a it's a it's if it's a law and it's also a school rule, what leads you to decide when we have to and you break both, right? Say like why do you have to take one to court or and, and or why can't you just deal with it at the school level? Does that make sense? Yeah. Like if you just if it's a if it's something as insignificant as I don't know, yelling in the hallway or whatever, or talking back to a teacher or talking back to an SRO, let's just address that in the school building. But for some reason now, we're seeing like petitions being opened 
like a lot of behavior that used to be dealt with in the school is now being dealt with in the court system. And um, I think a lot of it is arising out of these disorderly conduct defined um, behavior type uh, cases. It's just automatically going to like the legal level. More of them. Yeah. More of them. And you just, it's when they don't need to. It's so behavior that could be handled in the school system uh, is going and is is being handled in the in juvenile delinquency courts, family courts, and um, when there's no need for it. Right. I think a lot of people who are maybe probably outside of the school system don't realize how much it's turned from like being handled within the school to being handled on a, a legal level more often than it used to be. And that kind of brings up the question of, for our listeners who may not be familiar, how would you describe the school-to-prison pipeline? So the school-to-prison pipeline is pretty much the the, the concept that when um, students are introduced to the legal system or very severe disciplinary actions like um, long-term, short-term suspension, that statistically they are more likely to end up in prison later in life as an adult um, because of that early exposure to the criminal system or severe discipline. So like you, so basically what you're saying is that if a student, for example, breaks the disorderly conduct law and has to go to court for it, the likelihood of them being involved with legal issues is higher than if they did not have some kind of court case against them as a child. Yes, that's correct. Because once a petition is filed and this student is going to juvenile court, people see hear juvenile court and think of it as a kitty court. It's a regular court room in the courthouse. So this child is now being exposed to what this legal system looks like. They're going in there. There are uh, deputy bailiffs that are interacting with them. They're interacting with the judge, attorneys. They're seeing the entire process as an adult would, right? And in some situations, their first hearing is a, is a custody hearing, whether they need to be now detained in a group home, in a detention center, things of that nature. So they are now exposed to this whole entire criminal system. This has a severe impact on how they view themselves and how soci- how they believe society looks at them. And so now once they're done going through the process of juvenile court and go back into schools, they have a new perspective on themselves. You know, now it's impacting their learning, it's impacting what kind of future they're going to have based on their their um, experience with the courthouse. So statistically, those students tend to, at some point, get involved with the criminal legal system again in the future, especially as an adult. So that's why people have now coined this entire experience as the school to prison pipeline. Can I follow that up with something? And just to kind of support what Michelle's saying with an anecdote, um, we represented a child who brought one pill of Adderall to school. It was prescribed to his friend. His friend left his prescription at home. Our client brought that prescription to school for his friend because the friend left it at home. One pill of Adderall. Um, He was charged with possession of a controlled substance. He was ordered... um, a warrant was issued. He had to turn himself in. He was placed in jail for seven or eight hours. And you might think that's insignificant, but you spent seven or eight hours in jail, especially when you're a young person who's never been to jail, who's never been in any trouble whatsoever. Um, so that you've got a school, and this happened at school. It could have been dealt a whole nother way. He was suspended. We helped get the suspension dropped and dismissed, but the damage had been done already. Um, this child who was on the basketball team and who wanted to play basketball, he, 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 stopped his, he lost his will. He, he didn't play basketball anymore. Uh, that school year, his mindset changed, his emotional state changed. Um, he was damaged by that experience. Um, and where he has not been rearrested as far as I know, but that kind of experience, you know, can lead to further um, involvement with the justice system because the student now may not want to go to school anymore. I represented a child who didn't want to go back to school after an uh, an SRO assaulted her on the school bus. She didn't want to be around that SRO. She's terrified. So at the Right to Education Project, we're trying to get kids um, 
access to an education. This is about the deprivation of education when you 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 do this to a child and and then it affects their psyche when they enter into those school doors. How do I concentrate? You know? Um, so yeah, it has these long-standing effects psychologically, but also academically. Because now my, my grades might slip. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a great point. Um, you know, and especially like how is a student expected to learn when they don't feel safe? And I think Amor even mentions that before this, that she had always been, she had never caused any problems before. And suddenly everyone was acting like she was, you know, a criminal, even though before that she had never had any kind of negative interactions with administration or anything like that. And so now having that impacting her, you know, like you said, how is she supposed to go back to school and act kind of like nothing happened or, or feel safe and comfortable in an environment to learn and grow? You know, I think that that's a, a point that probably a lot of people aren't seeing. So I appreciate that you brought that up. And, uh, you know, 75% of federal inmates are illiterate. So there's a, there's a school connection piece here too. So when you're suspended and, and you're targeted or you're put out of school, you don't want to go back. You drop out. You're not getting the skills you need to succeed in society. And then you end up potentially in prison. Um, so we need to, you know, when, when we're talking about school discipline, figure out ways that we can address the deprivation of education that comes when we're disciplining kids. You know, how much school is lost when we suspend them. A lot of kids that we're seeing are getting put into alternative schools for long periods of time. And those alternative schools, the education provided at them, if you want to call it that, is paltry. Um, so you're talking about kids who probably need more education are losing education, so you're taking education away from them. And so what's going to happen? Yeah, I just wanted to add that. But that, that story about that student haunts me. Yeah. It haunts me. Um, this, that, and that was an SRO-related incident. There was an SRO in that school who decided to open up that, that case, and he didn't have to do that. You could have looked at it and seen what was going on. They tested this student, by the way, for a controlled substance in his system to see if he was taking the Adderall. He wasn't. There was no controlled substances in the system. The student who was prescribed the pill wrote a note saying, I was prescribed the pill. He provided the prescription bottle, you know, saying this was my medicine. It's medicine. A lot of kids take Adderall. You know what I'm saying? But this kid gets charged with a felony for bringing one pill to school. And then gets held in custody, right? He was 18, so he was a senior, um, so he was charged as an adult. It's serious, you know? Um, so very, it's, it's, this is damaging, harmful behavior that has long-standing psychological effects on these children. And it, and it just doesn't have to be that way. But that's, I think that's kind of like putting a picture, too, to what we're saying here is that that's pray that nothing happens yeah, with this child, but that's how I mean, it happens. That's, it, it's heartbreaking how absolutely something like this can just change everything for a kid. For sure. And it's it's almost just dismissed um, by a lot of people in authority, fig, like authority positions as being, oh, it's not a big, like you were saying, like to some people it might seem insignificant that he spent seven to eight hours in prison. But like that seems like a, Pretty significant amount of time to me. He was horrified. Yeah, of course. And and it's traumatizing and it up, impacted him in a really real way. He doesn't know how long he's going to be in there. He ended up him spending sick. He didn't think he was going to jail. So you walk into the courthouse thinking they're just going to tell you what your court date. I mean, you walk into the police station thinking they're just going to tell you what your court date is. He gets separated from his mom, goes to this metal detector and is taken downstairs right there on the spot and is put into a cell. He had no idea how long he was going to be in there. Imagine. Yeah. It's a child. Horrifying. Yeah. From a, one pillateral at school. This, it just didn't need to happen that way. Yeah. That case got dismissed. Oh, good. Right? Yeah. The suspension gets thrown away. So you're asking yourself, did this even need to happen in the first place? And it didn't. Right. And kind of like what you were saying, how the SRO did not even have to open that case. It also brings up the question, are you really here to help the kids? You know, is their well-being 
the central point of why you're doing this? And I think the answer is no to that question for a lot of SROs who do this kind of stuff. Right. And just to say one other thing about that, if there's someone out there saying, well, the policy school policy says you can't have that substance on campus. Actually, the school policy says a student can't have prescribed medicine on campus, number one. And number two, if it's not your prescription, you shouldn't have it, but you haven't violated a school policy unless they can show that you possess that prescribed pill with the intention of altering your mind state. So you have to at least prove that I had it, I possessed it with the intent to abuse it. And here they couldn't show that. So it's just, you know, I'm sorry, you know, it's very uh, upsetting. Yeah. Um, and, and, and upsetting in the sense that it's enraging. It makes you, and it motivates us, I think, to do this work because it's, uh, yeah, it's destructive to these children. I mean, there's a lot to say about the quality of education in our schools, how our children are performing in schools, the need for, um, us to be in school and to thrive in school, literacy rates are low, proficiency rates in, in reading and math are low. And then how do we address that? Do we address it by taking a kid out of school, taking education away from them, putting the child in a, in a detention center, and then not teaching them in a detention center? So then what happens when he comes out and you put him in an alternative school, he's not getting alternative education there. So if we, it would seem like it's, we would all be on the same page about this, that children deserve an education, all children, unconditionally, even if those children are locked up, teach them. If they're suspended, find a way. We're in the 21st century. You can teach them. You know, it's really no excuse not to teach a child at this point. And so really, I think there's a connection between, there's all, there's a connection between this. It's like we're taking education away from children. Um, as a form of punishment. So we're taking their future away from them as a form of punishment. And it's just starting from some, a, a place um, that seems backwards to me and, and upside down. And like, because, you know, black students and students with disabilities are disproportionately impa impacted by these behaviors, it just continues to add to the oppression of black people. And, and not having the same access to resources that white students have. Not to mention where this all started from. You know what I'm saying? And not to mention also, let's talk about reconstruction and where the right to education came from. So we're trying to rebuild this country, right? And the state says, okay, we need to fix this, well, this problem we caused, and particularly as it relates to black children. And black children are the ones who are going to get this public education. So you had a lot of black activists work towards getting the right to education to be included in the Constitution during Reconstruction, right? And so this is part of that, because we know how important education is to getting ourselves up out of slavery, right? And to being citizens. And so you're taking that away from us. So how can we get where we need to be? You started us from behind already. And now you're not even allowing us to get caught up, you know? So, you know, it, it's, it's all kind of, all this is connected. And so, you know, these, this is a civil rights issue of today. I think education and getting our, keeping our kids in school, or at least if you feel like they're a threat, giving them an education wherever they are. Right. And we can do that. We have the means to do it so that they, when they come out of detention or they come out of wherever suspension, they can hit the ground running. So on the topic of, of how this impacts students, I know that Amory spoke about how this impacted her long term. Um, we have a clip that we want to have y'all listen to and then share your thoughts after. I went from having an excellent child to we go to therapy twice a week. Um, she's on medication. It's so she's on medication for daytime and evening. That's how bad it is. Um, I constantly get letters, which I appreciate it. I don't, I'm not, let me reword that because she's sitting here. I get letters from her and she expressed how she feels. She is the awesomest kid when it comes to poems, but now I'm not getting poems about being a black girl, loving life. I'm getting poems about not wanting to live, um, wanting to wanting to take, take her life. 
She hasn't physically wrote that in paperwork, but she has put it in words that if you can read between the lines, you can understand it. You want to say something on me? Yeah, I don't. It just. It's just, I feel like that school just ruined me in general. Like, I don't feel how I used to feel, like, happy to come to school or just show up in general. And I just don't like to conversate with people anymore. I'm not cheerful how I used to be. I just don't like, I feel like, I don't want to say I don't like people. I just don't like the thought of talking to people or being around people because of what they showed me and what they put me through. So I'm scared I might run into one of those experiences again and it might just ruin me in general and just eventually make me do something I regret or make me feel a certain way. When I first heard this clip, I I found it really, really, really heartbreaking because Amory did not seem like this is who she was before this incident. Um, and hearing how this impacted her so negatively, mental health-wise, physically, it was really eye-opening to to what this does to students. And so I'm wondering if, you know, after hearing this um, and reflecting on on what Amory and her mother did say, how do you see these stories contributing to the broader narrative of the implications of these kinds of aggressive and over-criminalization of Black and uh, black youth and students with disabilities. I mean, it is really heartbreaking listening to her speak. It it just sounds like a light has been dimmed, and that's the same thing I used to see whenever I represented children in juvenile court. Lights constantly dimmed as they're interacting with the criminal legal system, or interacting with SROs at school, or just constantly being suspended. Dimming of the lights. We this entire process is really just. Showing kids, well, teaching kids that like, they don't have a future. And so children are not as invested in class. They don't feel like they can achieve certain things. I remember speaking to some students about possibly going to college or what kind of careers. And they would laugh because it's like they couldn't see that, especially after dealing with officers or suspensions in the in the juvenile system. They don't see that anymore. So this is really impacting kids mentally, emotionally, it's really just literally dimming their lights. And then, again, this is how students start to grow up and become involved in the criminal system and, hence, again, the school-to-prison pipeline. When they don't see a future for themselves because adults around them are making them feel like there's no future for them, this is what happens. And so it is really heartbreaking, and I hate to hear and see it. And it's just happening across the state. I mean, North Carolina is ranked, what, 42nd out of 50 states uh, for youth mental health. That's a problem. That's a problem. We need, as a state, they need to invest in uplifting kids and giving them that emotional support, that mental health support. Yeah, I mean, one thing I want to just make sure, I mean, you hear A. Marina, it sounds like she's giving up. But what's so beautiful about her and, and strong about her is that it has not deterred her from wanting to be a special education teacher. You know, she's going to fight through this. But it's clearly impacted her. Um, she's in, as her mom said, she's in therapy now. Um, this is all a, kind of connected to other things that are happening at the school. Where I mean, the cause of this is from another student harassing her because of her weight, you know. Um, so she's, she's getting it from a lot of different sides, social media, and a lot of kids are. And so, you know, we need schools, and I understand schools are under pressure, but um, I, we need the funding, we need the, the counselors, because the schools, can't, the administration can't do it by themselves. They need peace builders, they need people to intervene instead of police who can sit down and talk with these kids and, and, and build the relationships with them, they, what they need. I just want to add too, I was just representing a child, this is a 12-year-old, a couple of days ago. She wants to be a doctor. She wanted to be a doctor. She said that to her teacher, that I want to be a doctor. The teacher laughed at her and said, you'll never be a doctor. She brought a letter to that teacher showing her that she was admitted to the AIG program, the academically and intellectually gifted program. The teacher scoffed at her and said, there's no way you should be in that program. You don't belong in that program. The student then ripped up the letter saying, just heartbroken. She doesn't want to be a doctor anymore. That's not even involving a case with this SRO. That's a teacher. You know what I'm saying? So this is what we're up against. 
And now this child, if, if she ends up not being a doctor, if she ends up breaking the law, we're going to blame her or her parents. And you say, well, there's some personal, there's personal responsibility or whatever. You broke her heart. You're her teacher. And you broke her. And so we've got to build her up when that's what you should be doing, you know? Or the, 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 that's going to fall on us because you're not doing it. But it's just that we have all these, these, there's story after story that we can go to to show you how children are being impacted by, uh, you could say, excessive discipline, by in, in, involvement with the juvenile delinquency system. I'm, case after case. I could sit here and give you case after case. Well, why is this child being suspended for bringing a toy to school? You know, a Nerf gun. It's, it, it, kids being, not to mention in this atmosphere where there's um, the school shooting atmosphere has really exacerbated um, discipline and, and everyone's afraid. So kids who were, would have said this thing five years ago wouldn't be punished. And now, because we don't know who's the school shooter, it's if you say anything, you will be suspended for the rest of the year. You will be put out because we don't know who you are. Um, so that's a whole different thing. But um, I just wanted to bring that story in to also kind of just support what we're talking about. As you see these stories of people who are just you know, children who are being uh, harmed um, and their futures being dimmed, their lights being dimmed, their will being kind of taken from them. She has everything it takes to be a doctor, and you should be doing everything in your power as a teacher to get her there. Malcolm X was told the same thing. I told her that. You know, a teacher told him he wouldn't be anything, and we know what he became. So, you know, it's just, um, it's, it's tough. It's what you, and hearing that is heartbreaking, but she's so strong. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm really optimistic that she will not let anything stop her from doing what she's going to. She wants to go to college, and I think she's going to make it. I think you make a really good point when you were discussing the tension and the fear around school shooters and how a lot of conversations around school shooters really support the presence of SROs in in schools as like a protective measure. Mm -hmm. But then you have the SROs who are supposed to be protective and counselors and, and things like that. And then you turn around and you have them arresting kids for nothing, basically. So in, in terms of that, like the, the dichotomy of, oh, they're here to protect us, oh, but they're actually doing this, what are some alternative solutions that can be explored or invested in to have that protection against school shooters, but also not harming students long-term outside of that? Is that possible? Or will you always have that implicit bias? against students of color and, dis- and students with disabilities? It's a real tough question. I mean, I don't know how you protect schools from school, from people who want to shoot children inside of a school. Um, but if we're talking about what SROs could do, and you talk about implicit bias, they could come in wanting to be that thing that you're describing and yeah. not just being put there as a result of they don't fit out. Like, are you here as a punishment? Like, I have that question. Like, you don't, were you placed here? Because it's my understanding, um, uh, Eric Zagri would say, oftentimes the SRO is looked at as a lesser officer. So he's not, doesn't have this, he's not an equal. So it shouldn't be that way. I don't know why that, I, I have an idea, but it makes you, it, it kind of informs what's going on here. But yeah, if the SRO is there to protect these kids and build these, there's nothing stopping him from uh, uh, wanting to be there. There shouldn't be anything stopping him from uh, from wanting to build relationships with these youth. And I'm thinking about that the SRO I was introduced to um, in Warren County, who I would, I, I'd happily leave the, the fate of my, my children in his hands. I would trust him with that. But I can't say the same for this one here, to be totally honest with you. Not when he's doing what he did to A. Marie. But I don't know. I mean, it's a difficult question is when, you, when it comes to how do you protect children. But one thing for sure is they shouldn't be punished for what's happening in the, around us and for us not having the answers to how to protect them. Like we shouldn't overpunish them because we can't protect them, right? Or because we're blaming 
Uh, we're, we've got assault rifles out there that can kill 100 people in seconds or whatever, you know? And so, because now we're going to blame the child. I do feel like it is a difficult question. And I think it goes back to what I've been saying. Um, de-escalation and investing in mental health, uh, the state needs to give the schools more funding so they can have those staff. I don't think SROs necessarily have to be the first person that is involved in every situation involving a child. There are school counselors that sometimes know these kids or know their family um, background or where they're coming from, and they might have a better relationship with those kids to de-escalate the situation. Um, I believe if schools have more funding to have crisis management teams, they can work with students with disabilities who are having those uh, episodes or are under distress. So. I think if we invested more in that, if we also had impact assessments on SROs, um, like we said earlier, sometimes certain SROs don't need to be in schools. You know, who's assessing their impact? Who's assessing how students feel around them? And um, checking in on that relationship building aspect that we talked about. So um, I think a lot of those steps will work with uh, trying to help protect the school because a lot of school shootings involve a student who is who has mental health issues, right? Who is, why aren't we catching that in schools? Who's checking in on these students? That's exactly why we need larger mental health teams and more relationship building so we can know what children are having troubles. That does remind me of what it is I was going to say, because exactly uh, in support of that, um, I want to shout out uh, John Powell, who is a, he's, he leads the restorative justice clinic at Campbell Law. And what they do is they come into schools and they teach restorative justice practices. So if there are kids who are having issues, they sit them down, I think individually at first, talk to them, and then I think they put them together. He, he could tell you how he does it, and I think their program deserves a lot of attention and could model what needs to be happening in a lot of schools. And they, they are going into schools, and their data that they, they collect shows that they're successful, that schools want them to come back in. But what essentially I think what they do is create a culture, you know, where this kind, where you don't have kids wanting to harm each other because they're building relationships between those students. So I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to fight you. And we need to learn how to talk to each other anyway. So that's kind of what he teaches is communication. So we don't have to fight, you know? So, like, I'm not going to want to hurt anybody if I love these people. I like them when we get along. So we need to build that up. And he does it for free. So there can't even be this conversation about we don't have the resources because he'll come in with his team and they'll work with you. And he says when he comes in, the people ask him to come back. The students want to see him. So we're thinking instead of punishment or pushing kids out, we're thinking of bringing them in. Right? We're thinking of talking to them. It's it, it's not simple. I'm it, it seems I'm like I'm trying to make it that simple, but it, it kind of is. But it it does take work, and it takes that mindset. And he says the only way that you can get it to happen is by having the school leadership say we want it to happen because it doesn't work if you force it. So it's got to be voluntary. You got to say this is what we want. We want to try it. And then what he says is when you come in and you try it, it works. Why not try? So that would be an alternative to this, right? That would be an alternative to having people just in there looking for problems. You're solving problems. That's just when we're talking about solutions. I think this is something that would lead to less negative interaction with SROs and less juvenile court involvement, less suspension. Is when we flip what's going on, the approach, and we build this kind of culture in the school where we're like, we're our, our primary focus is keeping you in. Right. We want you here. I love that. I just, I feel like that really adds into the, it takes a village to raise a child and why I always stress that community partnership would be beneficial to schools. Just like that program being involved in the school it had results. Um, when I was in high school, there was a community program that came in and did meditation in the morning because it was so many fights at 8 a.m. And so all that anger, all that rage, whatever students were leaving their homes with, they uh, our school brought in uh, a community program that did meditation or yoga. 
they saw a decrease in fights. So I think those community partnerships, like like what was just described, would be beneficial to schools and may help with keeping kids calm or reducing the fights or things that are occurring in these schools. Yeah, both of those sound like fantastic alternative solutions. And I think it just proves that whole approach of like, well, there's no other options. There has to be SROs. There has to be intense punishment, blah, blah, blah. Like that's not true. And it shows that kids thrive in different circumstances than that. And I think that that's a really fantastic conversation to be having. Um, And there's so many different ways to have kids not only enjoy being around each other, but enjoy being at school and feel safe at school with each other and with administrators and with teachers and with SROs, hopefully, you know, I think that that's not an impossible future. You know, I think police kind of want this. I don't think police, you look in Durham where the heart program is expanding. And I think police are seeing that, oh, there's some benefit to this because I'm not going out there handling this situation because I shouldn't be. I can be doing something else. This person's having a mental health issue. It's experiencing a breakdown. I don't know what to do with him. But if I bring in heart, they can talk to him. And then I don't have a, a, a situation that might turn violent. I don't have to arrest this person. It takes something off of them, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know what I'm saying? So we could look at it that way. We're not just talking about like, it's totally being from the from the from the child's perspective. Like if you want to be a cop, be a cop. But go ahead and do something that's gonna protect the community, fine. But and I think that's probably what why they get into the work, I guess. So if you get people into this who 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 can handle the mental health issues, who can go in and talk to kids, that takes something off the officer's plate where they can focus on whatever it is they need to focus on. I'm it would make their jobs, I believe, easier, you know? So let's be talking about that. And we could look at it from that perspective. And you could look at the art program as a model and have that actually be what works in schools. It's the same thing. Instead of it being in the community, it's in schools. You have uh, crisis intervention people or peace builders in there. Moms, grandma, you know, is in there. I think that's what Ms. Parker actually says, bring mama in and let her talk to some folk. You know, um, yeah, but yeah, just to go off what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the heart program is fantastic. It's, it's such a great model that a lot of communities should really look into following. Would you guys mind explaining what restorative justice practices are? I'll do my best. Um, you need John Powell here to really lay it out. Um, but from my understanding, it's, uh, it's, it's what it sounds like. So it's restorative and not necessarily punitive. So you're trying to restore a relationship when there's two kids fighting, it's gen- a lot of times I'm seeing they were friends or they were at least talking to each other. Something broke down and now they're fighting. Now they're beefing. I see it all the time. So it seems like, well, and, and when you just suspend them and don't have them talk to each other, you're not fixing what caused the problem. You're causing more separation. And then they just be just pushing them away from each other and maybe pushing them out. And these kids often, sometimes, I'm going to say often, but they sometimes squash the beef, beef themselves. But- it would be benefit everyone if you can kind of restore that relationship. So I think the idea is you instead, it's a, it's a substitute for punishment. And in a way that kind of uh, teaches positivity, communication, what they call it circling. Um, and so what you do is you get in this circle and you might have kids and they're talking to each other about who they are, uh, maybe what caused the problem. Um, but they're seeing each other not as enemies. You know, they're building connections and bonds in this relationship. And he, I think John would tell you, and the way, at least the way he does it, is, again, he starts with each individual and kind of talks to them, makes sure this is something they want to engage in, because it has to be something that they want to be a part of. You can't force restorative justice on people. And then once the two parties say that they want to be a part of it, they get involved and they, and they build um, some community. They, they talk, and, and it works out. Um, I think you also see this outside in the community. It's not just in schools. Um, there's truth and reconciliation um, in South Africa, um, in various places, I believe in Rwanda. So you, saw, you see this idea that people who are victims 
of of of, a, of an assault or an offensive behavior, seeing some benefit and in interacting with the accused, um, and so it, it creates healing. And with that healing, I think you you build on on the relationship, and and you don't feel like you need to do harm to that other person, because now um, I'm kind of we we see each other as human beings. Um, we understand each other a little bit better. So, I mean, I, that's a long-winded definition or a kind of description. Um, and I, I really, uh, I think um, the restorative justice, at least as far as the Camel, clinic, uh, Camel Law Clinic is concerned, I think they've got document, documentation online. They've got some YouTube. Yeah, I mean, the but the idea, again, just to stress is that, and look, some people say this is a pie-in-the-sky pie kind of thing. He says it works. Why not try it? Again, it's free. And um, it's, it's, it's a way that, look, as a society, we think punish first, um, particularly with prisons, not to, you know, and, 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 and why we think about that in schools is beyond me. I don't know what makes us think that I'm going to take your education away from you as a way to respond to misbehavior. It just doesn't make sense. But he's saying, I think what they're teaching is like, this is an alternative to that. Instead of just simply punishing, let's try to uh, teach community communication. Because look, when I'm out of school, what am I going to do? You know, this is a way where I can learn to communicate with folk as opposed to to fight. Um, and we definitely need that. We need it. So it's really educational. Whereas I think just suspending the kid is not educational. I don't, you know, some people might say otherwise. You know, it's tough love kind of thing. But, I, you know, I think you, there's got to be some talking, and this is something we should try, um, and it's got and it's shown results. But I hope that kind of makes sense. But you should, if it doesn't make sense, uh, look it up and um, check out what they're doing. But there's all kinds of stuff out. There's a lot of uh, successful programs um, trying doing this, not trying to doing it. Yeah, I think the the emphasis on healing and communication and and community is so powerful when the approach of harm and punishment is so isolating right and makes it so difficult to feel connected to others and to say hey we don't really we don't need to isolate this person whether it's prison whether it's suspension all of those things that like push like you're saying push them out saying let's come together and work through this together with consent of course like people like you said they have to want to do that yeah um but saying like hey there's so much more efficiency and growth and healing when you come together and you speak about things and you work together to solve problems instead of just being like, oh, well, this was a problem, put him away kind of thing. And look, and it can't be a name. I've, I've learned that some school districts are doing, are doing research toward justice, but they're, they're not, I commend them for, for trying, but it's not this, it's not what uh, Campbell Law, for example, is, is doing. It's something else. It's, um, it's just restorative justice in name. So it's really got to be authentic and genuine to work. And you and then you do have to want it. And, and that's a hard thing to do is to to get kids to want <laughs> to sit down with each other. But that's that's educational. Like, as a matter of fact, maybe that's what you, well, it doesn't work if you force them. So I was going to say, look, it's probably more painful for them to do that than to send them home. So if you want to punish them, how about make them talk to somebody? You know what I'm saying? But it does have to be voluntary. So maybe that doesn't work. I mean, but, uh, I think kids after seeing it, work right would would obviously would i think would be more honestly interested in doing it like saying like oh those two guys that were just really like upset at each other now they're friends again and now everybody feels better and now there's not that tension there's not that fear of like sro's getting involved or getting punished or suspended i mean the more kids see that being an effective method i think the more they would be like Right. I want to do this. Especially because it's so often the result of something so minor. Yeah. A lot of the times. And the kids, they'll tell you that. You know, So it's just, let's try to work that out. And I'm not saying schools don't try, but um, you know that this isn't something that's in schools as much as it needs to be. And so, it's the, and it's free. Why yeah. not give it a shot? Right, yeah, that's He fantastic. wants to be there. They want to go. So check them out. Education is a culture. Like, that's... You have a good culture in place, you're going to learn it. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, well, do either of y'all have anything else that you want to talk about um, before we wrap up? I guess the biggest thing is, why not? Why not try all these different things? We see what's going on now isn't working. We see that kids feel unsafe, that they don't feel like this is a good learning environment. We're seeing all these incidents um, that are heartbreaking between SROs and students. So why not try something different? Why not invest in community partnerships or why not invest in increasing mental health care mental health care workers i just want people to really ponder on that and really like get those discussions going in our state because again why not and i just want to stress just that i'm um i feel for administrators and, and teachers having been in there as a student and as a teacher as family of principals my grandfather grandmother aunt my cousin's a principal you know I've got friends who are police officers. I feel for, I'm not, this, I don't think we were, I'm not trying to, neither one of us or anyone here is trying to vilify anyone, nor are we trying to dismiss how tough it is in schools right now, because I know that it's tough in schools right now. I think all we're saying is that there are ways that we can improve the, the environment that don't require punitive measures being taken or excessive force, uses of excessive force, you know, and uh, we can, we're just wanting to work towards that. And like, like Michelle, these things can be done. Some schools, John Powell's is, that, that, that clinic is, is, that is free, but you might not, you will have to pay for counselors. You will have to pay for mental health experts, but it's worth it. Our kids are worth it. And so we're really, you know, and I think, Principals and administrators are clamoring for this. They want it. Um, they know their schools are underfunded. They know their special edu education departments are depleted. They don't have special education specialists. So they, they want the help. So let's get them the help, you know? Um, and I think we would see, and I also want to say that like, there, are, there are plenty of districts that are really trying out there and are, and are trying to be creative and are using um, different methods to be creative and to teach kids. But, but we, we can't stop being critical. We need to put pressure on them. And things like what happened to A. Maria are just unacceptable. And, um, yeah, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm saying that, you know, because sometimes we could be on this, it could feel adversarial. And I'm not really coming at it from that way. Um, I'm really trying to be productive. And, um, and it's healthy criticism. And how can we be constructive? How can we be proactive? How can we love all of our children? How can we bring them in? How can we get them where we want them to go? I'm really moved by what happened. We just had this 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 stabbing in, in, in Raleigh, right? It's heartbreaking for everybody around. Um, so and so like we're not ignoring that this is going on, but we've got to kind of intervene before this kid before it gets to this place. Um, this kid said he was feeling bullied. His mom said he was feeling bullied. Um, and so, like, how do we, if he was being bullied and he felt so afraid that he had to arm himself, like, how do we stop that? How do we address that? And, you know, I'm not, I know it's difficult, but we've got to find out a way to do it. And, um, you know, we're all committed to it. So I just, I really want to say that, that I, I respect and um, kind of acknowledge how difficult it is out there. But Let's try to find ways that we can um, can can save and love and keep and educate all of our children, for sure. Doing that also benefits everybody. Like, yeah. like you said, it's hard in schools. Absolutely, having these things in place to make things better and safer for kids benefits administrators, teachers, staff as well. And I also want to say just heartfelt condolences to that family who lost their son. Yeah. To that whole school environment, you know, it's just, it's a hard, it's, I feel for them. I feel for the family, the child who felt he needed to take that action. He was being stomped out. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to make excuses for him, but just two weeks ago in Las Vegas, the child's murdered, you know, after being stomped on. So it's just like, man, it's it's heartbreaking to watch and you just feel for, the, for everyone. And that's kind of what we're saying. Like, we got to create a, an environment, all of us together. Got to create an environment where things don't have to go that that route. We stop it here, and if we got people in the schools who can do it, 
you know, it, it, you know, that's the answer. Like, let's get people in schools that can that kids can talk to. Yeah, and you know, and kind of stop this from happening before it does. But I just wanted to say that too. Well, feeling for feeling for them and yeah. feeling for a lot of kids out there, and the teachers and administrators. We've talked about a lot of heavy stuff, um, and so I would like for us to end on a positive note. Um, during the interview with Amory, we asked what she wanted to be when she grew up, and this is what she said. Um, I want to teach kids that need extra help. I've always had that dream since I was in kindergarten to do that. <laughs> I've always like been the one to be there by, like, you know, I can really relate to them. I feel like sitting one-on-one with them brings a lot of joy because they you'll be surprised how much they know they it's in my school it's common for them to get bullied for yeah. how they are or what they look like but i've always told them like anything you want to do i'm behind you on that like i'm proud of you if no one told you that i'm proud of you and that's even when i've not felt like i was proud of myself or i was just going through it and i needed emotional help or support in general, I still gave them a shoulder to lean on. Thank you, Amory and Regina, for bringing us your story. We have no doubt that Amory will go on to do incredible things, and we are committed to ensuring nothing stands in her way. As we come to a close, we leave you with this thought extracted from the report. Black students are not inherently more likely to misbehave, even when considering socioeconomic backgrounds. Yet, the stark reality persists. They are disproportionately and severely punished compared to their white peers for similar conduct. We invite you to not only acknowledge this disheartening reality, but to actively engage in dialogue about it. By conducting open conversations, we take a critical step towards dismantling these deeply rooted disparities and carving a path toward a more just and inclusive educational landscape. This is how we create lasting change. Thank you all for joining. Michelle and Carlton, thank you for your time and valuable insight. Take care, everyone. Thank you for joining This Is How, brought to you by the ACLU of North Carolina. If this episode resonates with you, we challenge you to take action. If you go to aclu.northcarolina.org, you'll find ways to donate and volunteer. Join us on social media as well. And if you like the show, share it with your network, subscribe on YouTube or podcast app, or give us a rating at ratethispodcast.com slash A-C-L-U-N-C. This episode was edited and produced by Ear Fluence. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon on This Is How.